I want to turn you this morning to the, the uh, one chapter epistle of Jude. Jude's epistle. Right before the book of Revelation, of course. Thinking about this passage and Jude's calling to defend the gospel of the Son of God. It's a very important passage. It's amazing. It is quite amazing when uh, I read the New Testament and I feel, I find that when the gospel goes forth and in power and God is saving, that the adversary raises up so many contrary voices, a great warfare to endeavor to distort or change or modify the gospel of the Son of God in some way, to subvert the souls of men. And not a few were subverted. Peter says there are many false prophets. Uh, there were false prophets among the people. There shall be false teachers among you. They shall bring in, he says, damnable heresies. And he says many will follow their pernicious ways. Not just a few, but many. I think of John the Apostle. He writes in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And so there is a need to understand that God gave one gospel, none other. One saving gospel he gave. It is the gospel of his grace in Christ through the cross. It is the only saving gospel he gave. Any modification of that gospel is condemned in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Paul anathematizes it in Galatians chapter 1. So there can be differences of opinion on certain aspects of prophecy and these things, but among God's people, there should be a united understanding of the one gospel, of the glorious gospel of the Son of God. There should be, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, that great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, etc. When it's, of course, speaking of our Lord. The Jude also calls upon those of us who know the gospel to be in defense of the gospel because there are those who will make a wrong use of the grace of God as taught in Scripture. So we read the first four verses, but we're going to be looking particularly at verses 3 and 4 of the epistle of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. 
For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Nothing takes God by surprise. He is the sovereign over everything. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We're actually taught in Scripture that there were those who adopted, who had a belief in the truth as set forth in the gospel, and then later denied it, turned from it, defected from the truth of the gospel. We call that apostasy. It is a falling away from the truth. But not only, not only is apostasy considered as a denial of what we learn in the gospel and the truth that's set forth in the gospel, apostasy can also come forth in practice as well as belief. It's thus important to understand that when the scriptures use the term the faith with the definite article, oft times that's not speaking of personal vital union by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's speaking of the body of the truth that's found in the gospel itself. That which is set forth to be believed is often referred to as the faith. And uh, <clears throat> through Peter, it's made rather clearly known that there can be even an acknowledgement of Christ as Lord and Savior and such a knowledge that at least initially and for a while moves one to outward morality and practice that they deem to be righteousness on their part and then turn from it. If this knowledge and or belief does not proceed from a true spiritual birth, a new birth, a birth that's brought about by the sovereign will of God, then this shallow conversion will always turn to a reversion the world will eventually take the heart. It's kind of scary when you think there was a man named Demas who obviously preached the gospel with the apostle Paul and then finally near the end of Paul's own ministry he had to write something no doubt that broke his heart. Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world. It's a solemn thing that one can come down so far and then deny the truth. Or if they hold to it as far as in the body of truth, they have a certain kind of belief in it, they can practice worldliness, the world still in their heart. The things that please the flesh they go after. It's a solemn thing, but it taught us there. As for instance, in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Apostle Paul says, uh, 
in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. That is, they held the body of truth as true at one time, but they departed from it. And that's not particularly a prophecy of what's going to happen at the end of time, by the way. That's speaking of someone who adopted the truth and professed to believe it, but later turns from it. And what can happen? Well, not too back, too back too far in your Bible, but look at Second Peter. Peter writes about this in Second Peter chapter two and verses twenty through twenty-two. And here he writes, "For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome." The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had better and been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed or wallowing in the mire. That last uh, verse gives us something of an understanding. God never calls his people dogs. He never calls them pigs. He calls them sheep. So these were never, ever the sheep of Christ, though they made a profession of faith. Those who are truly born of God will not apostatize. They will not deny the faith. They will persevere. They will overcome. That's why so many promises are given to the overcomers in Scripture. They will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. They will persevere in the faith of the Son of God, and their practice will in measure, and increasingly so, be drawn from the Lord Jesus Christ. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, as in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We rejoice in the gospel that teaches us of an imputed righteousness that shows us that we're unrighteous, we're unholy, by nature, we have no capability of producing any acceptable righteousness. We were born in this world dead. That is, dead in trespasses and sins. We have no capacity to work our way into any kind of righteousness whatsoever. And if one is left in that condition, it ends in eternal woe. And so we learn of the glory of God's wondrous grace in sending forth his own son, the son of his nature. He who was one with the Father from all eternity and sent him into this world to save sinners by the offering of himself. 
and then providing his own righteousness so that those who are called by the gospel, effectually by God's Holy Spirit, God gives them a righteousness that is perfect in his sight. It is Christ's own righteousness accounted that of the believer. And, of course, that's a wondrous thing. But there is not only imputed righteousness, which is the very righteousness of Christ, put to the account of the believer, the one who comes to trust in Christ and him alone, apart from his or her works, apart from any kind of works whatsoever on the part of the believer. It's a work that's done only by God, completely, by grace and grace only. It's a work done for those who are termed the called of Jesus Christ. But there's also work that God does in the believer. He does a work for us. This is the glorious gospel that teaches us that though we have sinned, and when God is present, when God is known, one doesn't come to think themselves righteous. They come to know what they are. And they come to fall on their face, spiritually speaking, in repentance before him in the fearful realization they've sinned against an infinitely holy God who created them. They have turned from him. They have walked in their own ways, apart from him, denied him. And that fearful thing is necessary. And then God brings them to realize that he loved them so much he gave his son to bear their sins, to take their place before his justice, and that in him and through him alone, God accepts them in Christ, in the beloved, as we learn. And that's a wondrous thing. But all at the same time, God has done something in them. In Philippians 2.13, the Apostle Paul says, God worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There is a work that is done for us in Christ apart from us by the cross and a work that is done in us who are called by that gospel that brings us by the sovereign work of God to submit to him both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And this matter of justification and sanctification, it all comes together. Both come together. They're tied together in the new birth. And the one is as much of grace as the other. We're saved by grace from beginning to end. We're saved by grace by being brought to Christ coming to know him, and that grace works in us all the way until the day of Jesus Christ, if by God's wondrous grace we do know him and belong to him. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But that same grace that saves 
according to what we read in Titus 2 earlier this morning, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we're saved by grace from start to finish. Grace has worked for us. Grace works in us. So Jude, in verse 3 of this little epistle, says he's writing to us about the common salvation. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. That's a very important term that he's using here. By common salvation, it's meant that there's not a different salvation for Jew or Gentile. It's the same salvation. Or for male female, rich, poor, slave, free, black, white. It's the same salvation, common salvation. And this common salvation belongs to all who are in Christ. He writes in verse 1 to those who are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. This common salvation this deliverance from sin and its eternal destruction. Because salvation has that meaning. Salvation means to deliver from danger and make safe. And of course the salvation of God in Christ for the sinner is the greatest salvation there is. It's to be delivered from eternal condemnation and made safe in Christ for all of eternity. So this common salvation Paul speaks of also in Titus chapter 1 verse 4 as quote the common faith the common salvation the common faith the same faith based upon the same revealed truth the truth given only once unchangeable and forever settled belongs to all who are truly sanctified in Christ Jesus. The believer is sanctified. That's where we get the title of the believer, saints, which means a sanctified one. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. The means by which God saves his chosen, the means through which they are brought into a right standing with him, and the whole basis for the transformative work he does in them is the same for everyone who partakes of the common salvation and possesses the same common faith. There's only one gospel. The whole of this salvation, the whole of it, from justification to glorification, comes by grace alone, by divine grace only. It was purposed by God the Father in eternity. It was secured by the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is infallibly applied by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration 
and calling. And if bestowed grace, as it does, always teaches, disciplines and moves its objects to deny fallen desires and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, how is it possible for the grace of our God to be so changed, to be so turned around from its purpose to produce holiness and does the opposite, to give free reign to sinful desires? Jude speaks of those who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Very important. But first we want to consider this common salvation. This being saved. This being delivered. And made safe. This common salvation is from a common danger. And brings one to a position of perfect safety. This common salvation delivers from the greatest danger and brings to perfect safety. The destructive tendency of human nature and the destruction of human beings does not come from a bad environment or lack of education or low-born social condition or economic deprivation. You can remove all those things. You can correct all of these problems in the world. You can put people into a far better environment. You can educate them. You can raise them higher on the social ladder. You can enable them to earn a good income. And yet the same personally destructive problems remain. Matter of fact, often increases. You see, all these things are but superficial. They don't go to the root of the matter. They don't get to the root of the problem. They do not heal the deadly disease. They may temporarily change one's condition, but they cannot change the destructive problem that lies deep in the soul of every human being by nature. If you go to a doctor and you have a fatal disease, If the doctor does not find the problem, the root problem, and just deals with the symptoms of that disease, the disease is still there. It's still there. Unless he goes much further than treating those symptoms, unless he gets to the source of the problem and the sickness and applies a remedy 
That evil intruder is still in the body, correct? And the doctor is going to lose his patient eventually. It will kill. Spiritually speaking, until the remedy is applied by the great physician, people of every social condition, every skin color, from every nation on the face of the earth, possess the same common destructive condition, and this condition is fatal. The soul that sinneth it shall die. And Ezekiel 18.4. Problem? There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. The great problem? Sin doesn't simply affect one part of man's constituent nature. It affects every part of him. Totally. The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even under the head. There's no soundness in it. But bruises and putrefying sores, as Isaiah would write in the first chapter of his prophecy. Now, what is sin? What is it? What is that which so permeates the souls of men? That it brings death. So destructive. And while they live it brings twists and turns to them in this life. May have a hidden source. There may be restraints. But it's still there festering. Still there. It surfaces from its hidden source. It comes into festered eruptions and destroys families, destroys relationships, causes mental anguish until it destroys eternally. Oh, man tries to come up with his remedies. But they don't work because he has not got to the real problem. So what is it? this matter of sin. It's nothing less than making myself central. Making self-interest my law. Putting myself in the place of God. Being my own God. Perverted thoughts controlling me. Choosing, engaging in things that please me in total disregard of my Creator whose law I've trampled underfoot. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, is neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from him that he will not hear. It's a solemn condition to be in, isn't it? Incredible condition that not many talk about anymore. And all who are saved 
from this common danger are all delivered from it in the very same way, by common salvation. A common salvation. And they've been brought to repentance, to the acknowledging of the truth, which is described as the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Those alone are able to defend this truth against its deniers who know it, who know the truth, who know and believe not what they imagined to be. Man would never have devised a gospel like God gives. Never. That's why the religions of the world, apart from biblical Christianity, always has man securing his salvation in some way. Not an incarnate God, the God of all glory, the Son of God, with the nature of the Father coming into human flesh to offer himself in the greatest of humility to redeem sinners. To deliver from the wrath to come. Man would never have devised such a gospel. Matter of fact, the Jews scoffed at it the Greeks laughed at it. And yet God sent his son to die in order to save sinners. And what God has done and established, it's forever. He tells about it in his word, in the Bible. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. As in 1 John 5.10. The same gospel is saved from the beginning. Prophets were saved by the same gospel. David by the same gospel. Apostles by the same gospel. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. God gave his own eternal Son, bearing in human flesh the same divine nature as the Father, and in Isaiah 49, God calls him my salvation. And he sent him to save all who were sovereignly tied to him by eternal decree, given him to redeem from sin by the offering of, of himself as the only acceptable sacrifice to remove the barrier, that awful barrier between God and men. And that is sin. The angel tells Joseph, his name shall be called Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. 
He offers himself once for all. He offers the infinite sacrifice of himself. This man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He was raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. He had no personal sin. None. And he's exalted now with all power in heaven and in earth. He sends forth his Holy Spirit to convict sin of sin. An absolute necessity if men are coming to know Christ. Sends his Holy Spirit. Convicts of sin. And convinces through the once for all given and unchangeable gospel that he accepts the believing sinner not on the basis of his or her works but by grace and grace only by divine gift freely given that requires a believing look and an empty hand to receive what God gives. And he says, look unto me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. He does that strange thing to some. Has Moses construct a brazen serpent? Puts that snake on a pole. Puts it up where everybody in the Camps, all of the camps of Israel could behold it if they but looked to that brazen serpent. What a strange thing. They had been bitten by serpents because of their rebellion against God. But when they looked on that, they were healed. The Lord Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Free this salvation is wondrous. The Son of God, at one of the great festivals, lifts up his voice and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. We would stretch forth the empty hand to receive what God has given. And as many as received him. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We cry then with Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand do I bring. I have nothing to bring. I'm but poverty-stricken spiritually. I have nothing whatsoever. I come not as one who's owed anything whatsoever as a beggar. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Freely take the water of life. When this is done in truth, it's only because God sovereignly, by his own will, 
brought one to newness of life in Christ. Just as James teaches in James 1.18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. This brings to a singular trust in the Christ who died for sin and rose again. But there's something else that takes place with faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is repentance toward God. And it's drawn from the same cross. The same cross that spells complete redemption, forgiveness of all sin, and restoration in Christ to him who was sinned against. It is the cross that draws out our repentance. It is Christ crucified when we realize what he has done for us and what it costs to redeem us from sin that works in us a repentance toward God. There's no way the soul truly redeemed from sin and to God who knows the awful price of his or her redemption, who comprehends something about the awfulness, the horrendousness of the price of their redemption, that they'll not own that sin, sin that cost God his son, sin that cost the son his life, will not see it as the worst evil there is, and come to hate it. And be ready to repent again whenever it rears its ugly head. Oh, to be rid of it. <laughs> Forgiveness is an incredible thing when God says, I won't remember your sins. When God says that to us in that wonderful new covenant secured by the blood of our Savior. What a glorious thing that is. But I'm looking forward to being where I can sin no more. In this I envy my dear brother David King. He's not simply past all trials and afflictions and difficulties and sicknesses and death. He's past sin. Sin causes me more trouble than my afflictions. Far more. And it cost God his son. I believe when you come to see that you come to hate sin that's what causes you the biggest trouble and if this does not lead one to forsake their own way their self-centeredness their fallen desires as their master and bring to a total consecration to Christ alone nothing else will 
is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. To his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What a salvation that brings us Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, is it at all difficult to know why Jude's whole energy was turned to plead with all who know the truth of this gospel? To defend it? To defend it against those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? Turn the grace of God into a license to go on in sin and its filth? Bestowed grace, the grace of our God that delivers from sin's condemnation. And from obligation to the law for righteousness. Supplying the very righteousness of Christ to the believer. One who trusts in him alone. This same grace enabled the believer to live godly in Christ Jesus. It's still all by grace. The reign of the law could not make us righteous. The law cannot make you righteous. It shows your unrighteousness. But it can't make you righteous. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But the reign of grace does make one come to a practical righteousness sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law it's not the law that's going to have dominion over you to make you righteous it doesn't have that office it wasn't designed to do so what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, in us. And then the grace of God works in us. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law, but under grace. As in Romans 6, 14 same grace we read about this morning in Titus 2 that teaches us to live soberly, righteously, godly.
in this present world. So what took place, you wonder, with these men who changed the grace of God from the tendency to produce righteous and godly living to a tendency to give a license to vent the sinful desires of fallen flesh. That would come through these ungodly men and what they taught about grace. They distort the teaching of grace that saves without works to a grace that releases from the love debt to submit to and obey Christ, the one who saves by grace alone. You see, the Lord is still their corrupt nature. There's that in them which opposes the truth of God and what his right ways are. Their Lord is their own corrupt, unregenerate, sinful nature. So that in serving their corrupt Lord, they deny, whether doctrinally or otherwise, still maybe professing, but denying the Lordship of Christ. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They deny Christ. The Lord is their own sinful nature. The order in the Greek from Barry's Greek-English interlinear, the only master, God and our Lord Jesus Christ, deny. The Lordship of Christ can be denied practically as well as doctrinally. There can be a form of godliness. Men can go through the religious motions. They can attend the religious ceremonies. They can do the religious ordinances and still be as ungodly as ever, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, the power of godliness. They profess, some as in Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Their works are for themselves. Their works are for their own lust and what they desire, not for God's glory, not for the good of others. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. No matter what one professes to believe, no matter how temporarily there may be a form of godliness, where there's no true new birth of life in the Lord Jesus Christ, the desires of sinful nature will always take back its rule. And what one wants, what they seek, what they do, will tell what they are. So how do false teachers get their adherence? Eventually separating others to themselves, even 
among those who for a while seemed to hold to the truth, for a while seemed to live morally, cleaner lives, as the world would say. Is it not simply because the nature of the teacher and the nature of the one who listens to the teacher corresponds to one another? They both have a fallen nature. They both live under the power of fallen desires. They both live under the power of doing what they want in spite of what's right. Both have their desires controlled by sinful nature. Peter writes about the same ones, or at least the same kind, that they are, quote, servants of corruption. And being so, they have, quote, eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin. It empowers them. It's their Lord, their Master. even if there is outward morality the world is still in the heart of the unregenerate and the flesh and the devil still control it's astounding what those who profess to believe in Christ will allow their eyes to gaze upon their hearts to go after and excuse it They need only appeal these false teachers to the flesh, just as Peter wrote. Again, if you look back at 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. These are wells without water. What good to well without water? Clouds that are carried with a tempest. Nothing but spiritual drought. To whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, empty words, words that have no meaning. They allure through the lust of the flesh. Through much wantonness. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Isn't that amazing? That's an astounding thing. There were those who professed Christ. They were apparently, it appears, delivered from these fleshly desires and these corrupt practices. But here come the teachers that correspond with them and tell them, no, the grace of God enables you to go ahead and live the way you want to. While they promised them liberty... They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. Sin is the Lord, the ruler. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Judas problem. Isn't it amazing that Judas had the power to expel demonic beings and 
heal sicknesses and preach the gospel? But his latter end was worse than his beginning. It had been better for him had he not been born. He never was regenerated. So, what is the responsibility of the true man of God? In light of the certainty that many false teachers will arise in Christendom, many, not a few, many. I think of Revelation chapter 12, and the picture that John gives in Revelation chapter 12 is of the flood that comes out of the dragon's mouth. It's massive false doctrine. He tries to swallow up the woman, which represents the church, the regenerate church. And his flood comes out of his mouth. He doesn't accomplish his task. The earth swallows it. Religious, no doubt. But the earth in the book of Revelation, speaking of those who are unregenerate, the earthly, the natural. But here comes a massive flood of false doctrine. So what's the responsibility of the man of God? In light of the certainty that these many false teachers are going to arise in Christendom. Not only so, but false professors are going to eventually apostatize. You know what the solution is? Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Timothy, what's your responsibility, young pastor Timothy? Preach the word. Preach the word. Well, the chapter before, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul speaks of the horrendousness that takes place throughout this age, this last age, from the coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, vile, etc. What are you, Timothy? Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul. He goes to a place called Miletus. He calls for the elders, those who are pastoring churches in the area to come to Miletus. He charges them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. 
That's the remedy. Feed. Strengthen. Teach the truth. Continue doing so. For I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. What was his remedy? Feed the flock of God. Feed those who are able to receive that spiritual food and become strong. They can resist the errors. I'm watching my brethren leave one by one. My brethren in the ministry, men I know solid, sound, godly in truth, knowing the truth of the gospel. Churches are going to have to be looking for pastors. What a solemn responsibility. Oh yes, I look at my own leaving. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm way beyond past <laughs> where some have been <laughs> that have left this world. I don't know when. It's in God's hands. But I see my responsibility to feed, nurture, sustain in the truth. And when that time comes, there will be the understanding and the firmness that will know how to look for a man who is a true man of God. We're not called to entertain goats. We're called to feed Christ sheep. They who are in and of Christ will hear. Those who are of the world will hear the world. The Lord will sometimes separate the false from the true by allowing unregenerate teachers to do their work. Matter of fact, here in Jude, verse 19, these be they who separate themselves sensual. That is, they live according to the dictates of their fallen desires, having not the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They cannot minister the truth of God apart from Him. They cannot live godly in Christ Jesus apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. If this were not true, it wouldn't be all over our New Testament warning us. <laughs> Timothy's taught labor in the word and doctrine, teaching. The apostles, when so many needs arose among the people, it wouldn't have been proper for them to continue to take care of the physical needs when it would take them from their true responsibility. We will continually give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is our business. 
This is my business. This is my responsibility. Feed the flock of God which is among you. This is the divine call that came. Feed my sheep. I can't regenerate anybody. I can't bring about the new birth. That's God's work sovereignly. But I can preach the word and pray that God would take it as the seed, the sperma, by which he's pleased to bring about new birth. Regeneration that brings a genuine faith in Christ and true godly living that's God's business. If there comes as we pray and desire, if it would ever come an awakening, a true spiritual awakening, by the sovereign will and the regenerating work of God, it appears that in this day it may just take a tearing down before building up. Churches are built on feelings, entertainments, psychology. Everything than the truth of God and His Word. God help us. God help us to adhere only to His method He ordained preaching and not be taken in by the appearance of great success or feel good things are appealed to, the flesh is appealed to. And preaching is supplemented by sensual entertainments, tragically mistaken as spirituality. You see, people are deluded into thinking because something makes them feel good that that's spirituality that's where we've come not so not so the spiritual person walks by faith and lives godly in Christ Jesus May God bless the ministry of his holy word.